Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. And these brothers have some Bibles, so they've come up front. They're going to make their way back, and as they do, if you'll get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you if you'd like one. We encourage everybody to take a look at the passage that we're considering so you know that we're getting it directly from God's Word. And that Bible, if you take one of those, is a gift of ours to you. And it's marked that the passage we'll be considering in 1 Peter chapter 2. So today we continue our series through the book of 1 Peter. We'll be doing so for the next several months. And you see the title of the series on the screen, Living Right in a World That Has Gone Wrong. I've been a sports fan since I was a kid and have enjoyed all sorts of sports, both viewing and participating back in the day. So I've wasted many hours watching baseball, football, college basketball, I have no time for the NBA, golf, boxing, you name it. In each of those and in many others beyond that list, I've seen epic games or matches in which a team or an opponent who was seemingly down and out, the contest had been decided, but then there's a dramatic turn of events and a comeback. The score was so lopsided, I may have decided to turn off the TV or to leave the stadium, only to find out that the unthinkable happened and I missed it. Y'all remember the Rocky movies? There were about 23, I believe, of those. And they were all built on that same theme. Rocky's losing badly. It's hopeless. But he comes back in the end. You know, one of the challenges for believers in Christ is that it looks like we're losing and badly. We're getting killed out there, as they might say from the sidelines, sometimes literally. From all that we can see, it does not look good for us. And even this week, as I alluded in the opening prayer, we've seen a turn in our culture that does not portend well for us in the days ahead. I'll have a brief word to say about the Supreme Court's action near the end of the message. But from all that we can see, it does not look good for us. It does not look good for us. But remember, we live by faith and not by sight. And remember what faith is in your New Testament. Faith is the same Greek word for believing. So we live by what we believe, not by what we see. And so the question for us at all times and in every circumstance and in every era of human history is, what do we believers, thus the name, what do we really believe? I have a pastor friend who says the theme of the Bible can be summed up in two words. God wins. You know, that's pretty accurate, isn't it? In two words. But do we believe that? God wins. Why do we have faith that God wins, if indeed we do believe that? Why do we believe that in the end God wins, and therefore so too will we? That's what we're going to see today in 1 Peter chapter 2. I invite you to look at the outline that we've inserted in your program. And we say there, here's, here's why we win. We win because of Jesus. Now, 
first, then who are the we when I say we win? We win because God wins. We win ultimately because of Jesus. Well, verse number 4 of chapter 2 says, as you come to Him, and then goes on to talk about the winning side. And so the we here, we win, is those who, according to verse 4, have come to Him, and that is written in such a way in the present tense in Greek so that not only have we come to Him in the past, but we are continuing to come to Him. So who are the we who win because of Jesus? It is those who have and are coming to Him in faith. Now, what is it that Jesus does? Who is it that Jesus is such that we win because of Him? Well, I say in your outline, we win because Jesus is God. God wins. (laughs) Therefore, we win if we're attached to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to win. We're going to win because of Jesus, and that's because Jesus is a number of things. First and foremost, Jesus is God. Now, where do we get that from this passage, that Jesus is God? We just looked at the first part of verse number 4, but notice verse 3. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then verse 4 continues, as you come to Him, the Lord. And then we're going to see that this Lord, the living stone, according to verse 4, is none other than the resurrected Jesus. So verse 3 says, you've tasted that this one to whom you have come, the Lord, is good. Now, how does that show that Jesus is God? Here's how. Because verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 2 is a reference to a passage in the first part of your Bible. Psalm number 34, you see on the screen, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want you to notice something about the word Lord there in Psalm number 34 on the screen, that it's written in all capital letters. Now, a number of English translations, including the NIV from which this is taken, a number of them use a convention in order to differentiate in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, between two Hebrew titles for God. One name for God in Hebrew is is Adonai. And when there is a passage in your Old Testament that is translating the title Adonai, you will see those four letters of Lord as capital L, but then small o, small r, small d. And it's indicating to you that the word behind that English word Lord is Adonai. But then when the translation is of the other Hebrew title for the Lord. It's all in caps, as in Psalm 34 8. And that's when it's a translation of the name Yahweh. Yahweh. And this name has a long and noble history in the first part of your Bible and in God's dealings with his people. Going back to Exodus chapter 3, when God called Moses and God told Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And you may remember Moses said, not me, you know all my inabilities, I can't do this. And and by the way, who am I going to say sent me? And the Lord says to him, tell them I am has sent you. Now, I bring that up for this reason, that the name Yahweh is related to that, that verb to be, I am the self-existent one. And that is why 
this title Yahweh throughout the first part of your Bible is a reference to none other than God Himself. And so now Peter, understanding that, in verse 3 of chapter 2, makes reference to Psalm 34, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, that Yahweh is good, and guess who Yahweh is? Guess who God is? He is the living stone. He is Jesus. We're going to win. But we're going to win because Jesus is God. And that is seen in the very name, Jesus, that we use. Because you may remember in the opening chapter of the New Testament, as the birth of the Lord, the the conception of the Lord by the Holy Spirit is announced by an angel to Joseph, and Joseph is confused as to how this has happened. And yet the angel says to Joseph, give him the name Jesus. Here's why. He will save his people from their sins. Give him this name, Jesus. Here's why you should give him that particular name. Because he's coming for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. So how does Jesus relate to saving people from their sins? Here's how. Jesus means Yahweh saves. His very name, Jesus, was given to him to connect him to God. God saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus is God. And so... Peter is reminding these beleaguered believers who are facing various forms of persecution that despite what you see, you need to believe, you need to know that we win. Why do we win? We win because of Jesus. Why do we win because of Jesus? Because Jesus is God. Secondly, Peter tells them and by extension tells us, we win not only because Jesus is God but because Jesus is is Lord. It says in verse 4, as you come to Him, this one who, who is God, but He is also then Lord. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him. Now down in verse 6, notice, notice verse 6. We'll see verse 5 in, in a bit. But it's another quotation from the the first part of your your Bible, the Old Testament. And it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then in verse 7, there's another quotation from the Old Testament. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you've got a lot of discussion in these five verses, verses 4 through 8, about stones and living stones and stumbling stones and stones that are precious and those, uh, a stone that has, has been rejected. In putting that together, what does, what does it mean? Well, when it refers to, in verse, in verse 5, at, to Jesus as the living stone, He's referred to as the living stone because He is the living Lord. He is alive. He has been resurrected. But this living stone has been, according to verse 7, rejected by the builders. And that was a prophecy from the first part of your Bible, that that would happen to the anointed one who would come, the Christ, the, the Messiah. And so the idea is this, that you have some builders who are surveying for a cornerstone, for a chief stone in order to set in place a building that will be erected. 
And they look at this particular stone, and they say it, in this case he, is not suitable. And so they reject him. Now, in verse number 6 and verse number 7, as I say, these are quotations from the first part of your Bible. Verse 7 is a quote from Psalm number 118 and verse 22. And this very same Peter who wrote this book of 1 Peter gave an explanation of all that had happened in the life and in the teaching and in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He did that in the fifth book of your New Testament, the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 4 tells us that this is what Peter explained. People of Israel, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Jesus is the stone And then he says, you builders, not just the builders, (laughs) you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, do you see what's happened here? Do you see what those that Peter is accusing had done? They had rejected this particular stone, and the result of that rejection was that they crucified him, says Peter. But God has taken the one you have rejected, and He has made him the cornerstone by resurrecting him from the dead. So when it says rejected, it's referring to crucifixion. When it says he's become the cornerstone, he has by virtue of God raising Jesus from the dead. And so Jesus came, the Bible tells us, to his own, his own people, the Jewish people. But his own received him not. And they rejected him as their Messiah. They rejected him as the cornerstone. And that rejection culminated in his crucifixion. But God honored and approved of him and signified that by his raising him from the dead. And it's not just those Jewish leaders who hate Jesus and reject him. Everybody who has not come to him hates him. You say, well, not really. I'm kinda, I know people are kind of on the fence. They're kind of neutral. As we're going to see, Jesus is the dividing stone. You either are for me, Jesus said, or you are against me. And those of us who are for Jesus, because we have come to him, will win because he is the Lord. And how we, do we know he's the Lord? Because the stone that has been rejected by men has been exalted by God as Lord and Christ in His resurrection. People's hatred and rejection of Jesus culminates in the crucifixion. But God's acceptance of Him and His death is seen in the resurrection. And the Bible teaches this, Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. When it says he was delivered over, it wasn't just that he was, he was handed over, that there was a, a transfer from one human authority to another to, to execute him. He was handed over by God the Father to accomplish the eternal work that God the Father and God the Son had determined would be carried out at the appointed time. He was delivered over to death for our sins, but notice, was raised to life for our justification. Now, you've heard that word justified. I've explained it on numerous occasions in the past. It 
Justified means that God declares those of us who are still sinners, as am I, as are you. But because of the person and work of Jesus, God justifies, that is, God the judge declares us to be righteous because he looks at the perfect life of Jesus rather than the sinful life of Ken. And because Jesus obeyed perfectly in his life, and that obedience to the Father was seen most starkly in his obedience to death, even death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2, then the Bible tells us God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is Lord because... God has declared him to be so by raising him from the dead, and he raised him from the dead by, in indicating that he was satisfied with the obedient life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it means is this, Jesus succeeded where all of us have failed. Jesus succeeded in obeying the Father perfectly where all of us have failed. And now we're accepted by God because we're in Jesus. And so we win. Who are we? Those of us who come to Him. But who is He? He's God. And He is Lord. Now, as an important aside, there's all of this talk in these five verses, verses 4 through 8, chapter 2, 1 Peter, written by none other than Peter. And I want you to notice who he keeps pointing to as the stone and the rock and the chief cornerstone and all of that. Who does Peter keep pointing to? Jesus. Now, here's why that's an important aside. You all know that there are people who say Peter is the rock on whom the church is built. And that would have been news to Peter. Peter's writing about the rock and Peter's writing about the chief cornerstone. Now, it is certainly the case that this lore, this, this myth, comes about because Jesus told Peter, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you in great ways, and undoubtedly he did that. And Jesus told him that in their very first encounter, when Jesus first laid eyes on Peter. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is, is Peter. And so I'm, going to, I'm giving you this name. You are going to be a, a rock. In fact, Matthew chapter 16, famously, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then Peter goes and preaches the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2. We've already seen him explaining the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 4. God used him in a mighty way. But Peter himself considered the ultimate rock upon whom our lives and his, God's church is built to be none other than the chief cornerstone, the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told of this rejection of him by his own people in a parable. When he walked the earth, he spoke, as you all know, in parables and stories. And he told one such story about a landowner who rented out his land to some planters or, or tenants. 
And they used the land in order to, to grow uh, produce, to sell it, to make a profit, and they had to pay the landowner for the use of the land. And so the landowner sent servants to collect. But in Jesus' story, those servants were killed by the renters. Rather than pay what they owe and honor the landowner, they stole his money and they killed his servants. Jesus in the story says, he sent more servants and they too were killed. Jesus elsewhere in the Bible says that it was people just like his opponents, the religious leaders of his day. It was people just like that who killed the prophets who had come before in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And these are the servants that God had sent but who were killed. And that's the imagery in Jesus' story. The landowner has sent you all servants, and you've killed them. And then Jesus says this, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, Jesus asks, as Jesus is telling this story, he's talking to these very religious leaders who in a few days are going to kill Jesus. And he's accusing them of being people just like those who killed the servants who have come before. And what is the landowner going to do with those tenants who have done these awful deeds? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the share of the, of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? And then it's the same quotation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You are rejecting the stone, the precious stone that God has sent. Therefore, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now notice, in this stone, what stone? Jesus himself. Jesus is the dividing line. And I will take the kingdom of God from you, and I will give it to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, next week, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. But just take a look there right now, if you would. Because there Peter says, You are a chosen people and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and God's special possession. You are, we are, among the people to whom God has given these blessings. <clears throat> Though others have rejected, God in His mercy has moved on our hearts for us to receive and honor the cornerstone. <clears throat> so we win because Jesus is God. We win because Jesus is Lord. And we win in your outline as well because Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Now, I say sovereign. It's not a word we use every day. Jesus is sovereign, which means he's in full control. 
And that sovereignty of Jesus is seen in what it is that Jesus does in and through his people. Notice verse number 5 now. Verse 4, Jesus is the living stone. He is the appointed stone. He is the cornerstone. He is alive by virtue of his resurrection. He's rejected by humans, but he's chosen by God and precious to him. Verse 5, you also. And friends, as you read verse 5, Just read with amazement that there can be a sentence anywhere in God's universe that compares the living stone and then says, you also are living stones. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Verse 5, you also, like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so I say Jesus is sovereign for this reason. Peter writes this in such a way as to say, this is what is going to happen with those who have come to Him. Because He is sovereign, He finishes what He starts, and He has started a work in you, and that work is to create in and through you what's described in verse number 5, and the sovereign God and Lord, who is the chief cornerstone, who has come and lived and, and died for us, and is resurrected as the living stone, He will accomplish these things in us. He is sovereign. And so when it says in verse 5, living stones... That is, unlike Jesus, who is the cornerstone, which I'll describe in a little bit. But Jesus is the foundation stone, the cornerstone. But in verse 5, we are stones that are part of the building that He is erecting. Each of us are part of this building, this edifice that He is erecting. And verse 5 says we are like living stones. Why are we living stones? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised, and so we have been raised. And our resurrection from the dead is guaranteed by virtue of being attached to Him. And so we are living stones as He is the living stone. We're being built into, verse 5 says, a spiritual house. And that phrase, spiritual house, as used in Scripture, I don't have time to prove it to you, but is most often in the Word of God a reference to the temple. This is temple language. You are being built into God's temple. And that's why then the next phrase says, a holy priesthood. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus did the work that was necessary for us to each have access to God once for all, according to the writer of Hebrews. And now each of us are believer priests, and we have direct access to God, and each of us as little stones in this building are God's temple according to the Word of God. Now, where does it say that? Well, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, who wrote it, it's on the screen for you, don't you know? That you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. Now, let me just stop there. Some of you are familiar with another passage that Paul wrote in the very same book, 1 Corinthians, just a few chapters over, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
And so when you read this, you think it's the same thing, but it's different in a very important way. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? But when he says your bodies there, it's singular. It's your individual body. But here in chapter 3 in verse 16, it says, don't you know that, and this is the way the NIV helpfully translates it, not just you are God's temple, you yourselves. And here's why. Because in English, we have no way to differentiate in spelling between a second person singular and a second person plural. So if I say, hey, will you do this for me? I may be referring to Bonnie individually. But if I say, hey, will you do this for me? I can be referring to all of you, right? Spelled the same way, sounds the same way. Only context will tell you the the difference, but in Greek, they actually have two different words. And in chapter 6, it's the second person singular, you, and in chapter 3 here, it is the second person plural, you. And that's why the NIV says, you yourselves, collectively, are God's temple. Now, just very quickly, let me just say, dear friends, here's what that means. Forgive the grammar, but there ain't no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We together are God's temple. And then God issues a solemn warning in verse 17. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, referring to God's church, God's people, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. And these are great promises to God's people in the first century through the pen of Peter and through the pen of Paul and now to us that though it looks like we're losing, understand we're on the winning side. And God will destroy anyone ultimately who does harm to His people. We win. We win because of Jesus, because Jesus is God and because Jesus is Lord and because Jesus is sovereign. And Jesus has called us to be His spiritual house, His holy priesthood. Verse 5 says, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable, what is this? It is everything that we do through and in the name of Jesus. Friends, we can now please God through Jesus. When prior to coming to Him, we could in no way, even our righteous deeds were as filthy rags before God, and now we can please Him in the power of the Spirit and only because of the work of Jesus. But now we can please Him in contrast to those who are outside of Christ. Verse number 6 then tells us what we've looked at. I lay a stone in Zion, in Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone, The one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. So dear people who are suffering persecution, understand you're on the winning side. You will not lose. You will not be put to shame. Your confidence rests in one who will fulfill all that He is designed to do. And then verse 7 says this, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. And that's in contrast to the ones who lose. I mean, the losers. The unbelievers, 
for whom Christ is not precious, but rejected, and over whom we're going to see they stumble. Now, it is definitely true that there is the believer for whom Christ, the chief cornerstone, the chosen and honored one of God, is indeed precious to us, rejected by others. That's all true. But actually, the word that's translated precious here actually means honor. It's the same word that is used in chapter 1 and verse 7, chapter 1 and verse 7 of Jesus. And it says there that God has designed to bring glory and honor to Jesus in the last day. And so here it's actually the word honor. And so the verse should be this. Notice on the screen, so the honor is for you who believe. Look, I wasn't blowing smoke when I said we win. God says the honor is for you who believe. Why? Because you're attached as a little stone to the living stone, capital S, verse 4, that is Jesus. And so we win. We win because Jesus is God and Lord and He is sovereign. We win because of Jesus, but notice in your outline. Everyone else loses because of Jesus. You say, because of Jesus. What did Jesus do? <laughs> Jesus was and is and always be, will be who He is. All Jesus did was be God and Lord and sovereign. And that is enough for those who do not come to Him, for those who do not believe, to lose. Because they reject Him. They lose because they reject God, I say in your outline. You see, dear friends, rejection of God is what causes rejection of Jesus. You remember those religious leaders who purported to know the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and its predictions of a chosen one, a Messiah who would come, and Jesus presents Himself to them as the Messiah, and they say, no, they examine this stone, and they reject this stone. You're not going to be the cornerstone of God's building. They reject Him, and Jesus says, if you had known my Father, what? You would know me. The rejection of Jesus shows that they don't know God. Hear this. There is no such thing as one who believes in God but not Jesus. Do you all know that? I mean, we think, well, so-and-so believes. Believes what? Well, believes in God. What God might that be? There is one true and living God, and He has come to earth, and He has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of who? Jesus. They lose because they reject God. They lose because they reject, I say in the outline, the Lord as well. They reject the Lord. They reject the Lord. Verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the cornerstone was a portion of a building. In this case, the imagery is of the temple, 
a massive stone that would be placed on the corner and thus the name in order to set the foundation and also to set the lines for the, for the walls, giving it stability and direction. And that is who God the Son Jesus is, and that is what God the Son Jesus does for His people and for His church, but He has been rejected by those who don't believe. So He is not only a rejected stone and thus not the cornerstone to them as He is to us, but verse number 8 tells us He's a stone that causes people to stumble, and He's a rock that makes them fall. That too is a quotation. See in some quotation marks? Isaiah chapter 8 in the first part of your Bible. Now that word that's translated in verse number 8, he's a rock that makes them fall. The word is uh, petros and scandalou, scandalon. We get our English word scandal from it. The Bible else, elsewhere tells us that people are scandalized by the truth of Jesus. And when people are confronted with the truth of the person and work of the Lord Jesus, there is a decisive, absolutely decisive life and death eternal decision that must be made. You bow before Him as your God and your Lord and as the Sovereign One, or you reject Him, you stumble over this One that was designed to be your cornerstone, but you have rejected, and it crushes you according to the Word of God. They lose because they reject God, because they reject the Lord, because, thirdly, they reject his authority. Verse number 8, they stumble because they disobey. They disobey the message. If you were with us last week, we saw that the Bible calls people to the obedience that comes from the gospel, that the gospel call is a matter of obedience, that God does not give people the opportunity to decide, are you worthy of me to follow you? God says, I am your God, I made you, and I call you, yea, I command you to follow me. It is a call to obedience, and it must be obeyed, and failure to obey has eternal consequences. They stumble because they disobey the message. Jesus is presented as good, what should be good news, as this chief cornerstone and they reject it. And the last part of verse 8 says, which is also what they were destined for. What does that mean? They were destined, hear this, to disobey by virtue of not being chosen. I'll repeat destined to disobey by virtue of not being chosen. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we saw several weeks ago the people to whom Peter is writing and then by extension to us are God's elect. And verse 2 says, 
chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. If anyone is going to obey the gospel, God must actively choose to give them, as Peter goes on to say, and as he has done with us, give them the new birth and therefore a new nature. But for anyone to disobey the gospel, God doesn't have to do anything. Did you all know that? God does not have to do a thing for people to disobey the gospel. As a matter of fact, if God does not give a new nature to an individual, they will disobey the gospel because that is their nature. They will follow their own sinful nature to its inevitable conclusion. And so you are saying, well, then why doesn't God... What, what are you saying? <laughs> well, then why doesn't God do that for everybody? And the real question is this. Why does God do that for anybody? And the Bible's answer to that is, because of His mercy and grace, which He owes to no one, so that he can have a people of his very own, his very own possession that we're going to see next week in verses 9 and 10. And so this passage and this message contrasts starkly. We win because of Jesus. Everybody else loses because of Jesus. Jesus is the dividing line. And in the Old Testament imagery, you have this rock idea, God being our rock over and over again. Notice what Deuteronomy 32 and verse 31 says. <laughs> Their rock is not like our rock. You see, people who reject Jesus don't have our rock then. And Jesus said, remember, people build their lives on the sand. There are people who build their lives on the solid rock. And everybody who has rejected Jesus is building his or her life on the sand. And so I bring it back to where we started. We live in a world where it looks like we're losing. Please understand, friends, God the Son, God wins. And if we're attached to God through God the Son, we win as well. And even when it looks like we're losing, and even when the Supreme Court does what they did this past week. I will say more about the Supreme Court decisions later in chapter 2. When we get to verse 13, it speaks about our relationship to governing authorities, okay? But for now, understand this. Ultimately, no one can break God's moral law with impunity. So even though it may look to us like they are winning, like unbelievers are winning, like it's taking over the country, like it's taking over God's world... That's happening, but only temporarily because no one can break God's moral law and get away with it any more than one can break God's physical laws. Let me give you a quotation I read this past week. Somebody could defy the law of gravity, perhaps by stepping off a tall building, but no one can break that law. Anyone who defies gravity will eventually have to face the reality that gravity wins. The law of gravity breaks the person who defies it. And in the same way, God's moral law will break the people who defy it. And break them in the present order, not only in the end. No one rejects God's law and thus God with impunity, not even here and now. And so we come to the end. And I ask you, where are you as it relates to 
the dividing line for all history and the dividing line for all eternity for you and everyone else. He is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the issue at all times and in all places. And dear believing one, dear church, understand that as we perhaps move now into a new era, even in our own country, where people will look at Christians and will, will mock in ways beyond what we've experienced in the past. And perhaps people like me will be told, you can't preach what you're saying. Whether in this generation or the next, understand God still wins. And when they persecute us, ultimately it is still Jesus who's the dividing line. It is ultimately Jesus that they hate. How do I know this? Do you remember Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus? And Paul was going to persecute Christians. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks and Jesus said, Saul, why do you persecute? Do you remember? Me. When you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. Why? Because Jesus is the one with whom we have to deal. And we're going to bow our heads. But dear friends, I tell you, on the solemn authority of the Word of God, that Jesus stands before you as the chosen cornerstone. And if you reject Him by not coming to Him, do you understand? <laughs> if you don't come to Him, you've rejected Him. If you don't come to Jesus, there will not only be consequences in this life, there will be consequences in the life to come but He offers Himself to you. And He has you here in this room by divine appointment. And you have heard His message. And if His Spirit is tugging at your heart, you obey the call of the gospel. And you can do that when we bow our heads in just a moment. When you do, you can acknowledge, as you see on the screen, that you're a sinner that Christ has paid for your sin, that you must repent. That just means, Lord, I want to follow you with my life. And then you acknowledge that from your heart to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I am as has been described. And I ask you to forgive me. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I want to follow you with my life. He promises to rescue you, to save you. If you say that to him from your heart, you mean that God's spirit draws you to himself. And so we're going to bow, and I urge you in the most solemn terms to do that. And those of us who have come to Him, let's thank God that our lives are built on the chief cornerstone that is Jesus. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for this sacred time where we are able to look into Your Word. And Lord, Your Word does not mince words. And therefore, if we are going to be people of your word, we cannot either. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to what you have said in your word about who you are, about our condition, about our need, about the person and work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone meets the need that we have for relationship with you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you're doing your sovereign work in the hearts 
of men and women, teenagers, boys and girls right now. Lord, I ask you, though you are not obligated in any way to anything that we ask, I ask you in your mercy to draw people to yourself. Cause people to obey the gospel. Now we ask. And for those of us in whom you have done that work, Lord God, we thank you for the difference that it has made. Help us, Lord, to be people who always remember with thankful and joyful hearts. We win because Jesus has secured the victory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.